Welcome to the podcast, From Crisis to Connection. I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I'll be bringing the professional perspective. I'm Jody Stewart, unlicensed wife, mother, daughter, sister, friend, and neighbor, and I'll be bringing the regular everyday perspective. We are all about relationship recovery, and we'll tackle tough topics like infidelity, abuse, addiction, pornography, and betrayal trauma. We also focus on helping you build stronger connections in your most important relationships. So thanks for joining us. We're glad you're here. Well, welcome back, everyone. We're so glad you're with us again. Yeah, welcome. Today is an exciting revisiting of a podcast that we started and had to stop right in the middle with uh, Dr. Adam Fisher. We talked about couples patterns and he had 12 of them and he went through the first six. Mm -hmm, We got through half. And then we had to stop because, you know, time. Yeah. And so- Yeah. So we're excited about this next part. Yep. We're bringing him back and we're going to finish up this discussion and- But let me tell you a little bit about Adam before we get too far into the podcast. For those of you who don't know him, Adam Fisher, PhD, ABPP as a licensed clinical psychologist, ASEC certified sex therapist, and board certified in couple and family psychology. Adam is an assistant clinical professor at BYU, where he teaches in counseling psychology and student development and sees clients for individual group and couples therapy in the counseling center. Adam has also has a private practice focusing on sexual health and relationship concerns, and co-leads an online therapy group for people who feel out of control with their sexual behaviors. So welcome back to the podcast, Adam. Thanks. Yeah, glad to be back. Yeah, we're excited to get back into this conversation because we certainly saw ourselves in a lot of these patterns. And a lot of clients and others that have contacted me said like, oh, that was so good. And man, Mm -hmm. pushed all my buttons. So. (laughs) Yep, absolutely. So let's jump right in. Are you ready, Joe? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Adam, let's jump right in. And if you can review the first six patterns that we did the last episode, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah. I'll just say with with, with patterns, it's sort of a, a, a nerding out kind of thing. Like a lot of us in different fields like to nerd out about something related to our field. And this is definitely one of mine. So there's sort of just an interest. But also it's, it's personal too, right? Anyone who's been in a relationship has probably found themselves in some kind of ongoing repetitive kind of pattern of conflict or disagreement or, or, or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think to, I'd just like to emphasize up front that maybe what matters most is any couple sort of trying to see some, uh, or maybe having like a shared understanding of, of what a part of what might be going on. So it's not all just, it's the other person's problem or it's all my fault. Um, sure. And I'm all for self-responsibility, but there's also a dynamic and a pattern that happens with couples. And so more than any specific pattern that we talk about, I think just the idea that problems exist within patterns and sometimes patterns can be changed a little more easily than a specific problem can even is a helpful kind of framework. So yeah, as far as like the, the patterns goes, we, I know we talked about last time how like this first one is pursue distance one is a, is a common one that gets talked about, I think, I mean, in, in articles and books and things where, you know, one person wants more intimacy or more emotional connection or, or more engagement. The other person sort of feels kind of overwhelmed or uh, wants to pull away. It's like, it's, like it's, it's too much. You need a little more autonomy, a little more uh, a distance. That's sort of that pursue, withdraw. It's another term we hear. Uh, sometimes that correlates with like attachment. Like you have sort of a more anxiously attached person. Wouldn't you know it? They're married to somebody who's a little bit more avoidantly attached. Yeah. Yes. Like somehow that managed to do that just <laughs> to happen, and even so, those aren't like diagnoses. They're not. They're not pathology. If you have like an anxious attachment, this is not a. It's not a diagnosis. 
And you may very well be sort of a pursuing type in one relationship. And if you were in another relationship, you could be more of the distancing or withdrawing right. type. So again, it, it kind of speaks to how these patterns aren't necessarily about your internal state of characteristics or your personality, but how you interact together. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was, that was the first one. The next one that comes up a lot um, is this sort of over-under-functioning. I've seen more folks been talking about this, have been talking about this lately. So the over-functioner sort of feels like they do everything. Maybe they do most everything. They take responsibility for everything. The underfunctioner never follows through, doesn't do it right. Overfunctioner makes all the decisions, feels maybe some anxiety about losing control, tries to manage. The other person sort of feels resentful. The resentment sort of grows on both sides. Why aren't you doing more? You know, why do you always control everything? Really the goal there, right, is to help both people or to have to have both people sort of step up and become adults together and, and relate mm-hmm. to each other on an equal level as opposed to this sort of like this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then it's my so person, hard to not interrupt you and like start this, no, no. the other episode Please. again. I go know. through all these patterns. <laughs> I know. So we'll just we'll just say yeah. there is a whole episode all about these of, of these yeah. other six that we spend well, a lot more time on. So I'm just going to shut my mouth I and know. let you go through them because it's so interesting. <laughs> we want to say more. Yeah, we want to get to yeah. the yeah. So how about this? I'll zip through these through to review, and then we'll slow down when we get to the new ones. Perfect. Okay, good. Perfect. So my personal favorite, I think, as I said last time, is sort of the frustrated teacher, you know, re- resistant, rebellious student. And I think it's not a fun one to be in. Oh. It's, it's terrible to be in for both parties, but it's funny to talk about. Uh, <laughs> that's my flippant sense of humor coming out about, you know, distress. <laughs> uh, we'll, have to, we'll have to cope somehow, right? Yeah. So usually this pattern comes out in terms of like how to do relationships. Like you're doing this relationship incorrectly. Like this is how, you know, we should engage. This is how we should be talking to, you know, my parents or family members or in-laws, or this is how we should be. We should be going on this many dates per week and we should be well, whatever it is, there's sort of an educator in the relationship and there's another person who's like, no, and sort of feels kind of rebellious against that. It's especially seductive when the teacher role person is actually right. Because <laughs> sometimes they are right. Mm-hmm. Right. And sometimes there is a better way and they know it. But it's still playing into that pattern. So the challenge there is, especially if one person actually is right, which does happen sometimes. Mm-hmm. If they actually are right, the couple's really going to have to work even harder to get out of this one. Otherwise, you're going to continue on this. It's not an attractive pattern to be in with your spouse in sort mm-hmm. of a teacher-student role or parent-child kind of dynamic. Something to watch so out true. for. The next three are kind of more about how we handle conflict. So a demand withdraws is a little different between like, little different between like a pursue distance or pursue withdraw. A demand withdraws, you know, one spouse wants the other one to do something or to stop doing something. You need to do this, you need to stop this or whatever. The other person usually doesn't comply, right? However, it might be sort of a passive non-compliance or, you know, they might say, they might agree to something, but then, you know, they're not really going to do it. As simple as, hey, will you take out the garbage more often? Oh, yeah. And then they know they're never going to do it. Um, that's a, a simple kind of example, but it could be a bigger, bigger thing. And same as the parent-child thing, it's especially difficult for a couple when the person who has the demand is right. Mm. Again, makes it harder. It's almost easier to change some of these patterns if both of them are sort of equally right, wrong, whatever, it's gray, it's mixed or whatever. But if one person clearly has like, hey, you're drinking too much. Let's say in this situation, that's the truth. It's going to be harder to get out of this demand kind of withdrawal or parent-child kind of pattern with it. But they've they've got to be able to address that somehow. The next one, which I don't see as much in in my office, but certainly they're out there. And I I have sometimes that 
is sort of a, a blame blame. Sue Johnson talks about this one too. Emotionally focused therapist, therapy creator. Um, she calls it find the bad guy. Or you could call this like a flare flare sort of sort of like both people kind of attack. Like one person brings up an issue, the other one lobs something back and they're just mm-hmm. kind of escalating all the time. These can kind of get out of control. Um, sometimes in therapy, right, it can kind of feel like playing a mediator or traffic cop for a bit just to try to get things controlled. Mm-hmm. Um, they can have a lot of energy in some cases and they're not avoiding stuff. And there's sort of an e- equality in terms of going at it. But the problem is, is when it's like escalating like this. So the challenge there, I think uh, John Gottman talks about this. If, if some person comes in sort of hot, the other person, maybe they meet them, but they don't escalate it. So you're not going like this. Mm-hmm. Last one to, to review is sort of one person flares like that or gets upset or angry. And the other person gives in initially, but then they find a way through the back end to retaliate. Like after the fact, initially that person might shut down. But if you see one submitting a lot in a relationship, not always, but often they'll find a way. Oh, yeah. To get the power back passive aggressively or whatever. So, yeah, yeah I, are- I sort of chuckle because I've seen some very creative examples of that in my career mm-hmm. of people that they will level the playing field. And because they're not, they're not going to be direct about it. They're very indirect, but it's still, anyway, we can go on with lots of examples of those, but yeah, that's a very common dynamic. And so you want to jump into the next set? Yeah. Yeah. So I think this next one will relate a lot to, to some of the guests you've had on and some of the topics you've covered is sort of a secrecy detection pattern. Uh, So in this case, one person sort of withholding some information could be infidelity could be a lot of spending that isn't known. Could be even how much they're working. Information about the children that they didn't want to share with the other one. Anything online, like a chat room, even if it wasn't sexual, if it was something that was outside of the agreement of their relationship. Basically, it's a to hold these kind of secrets, is it's a kind of control mm-hmm. in a way because you're withholding important information. But usually where the secret keeper is coming from is they feel like the detective or detection partner isn't going to handle this, or they're going to be too overwhelmed by it, or or I, I don't want to hurt them. I don't want to give up the thing that I'm doing, but I also don't want to hurt this person. And so honesty is sort of the thing that gets sacrificed in trying to figure out that balance. In other cases, the secret keeper feels like a, a fear of being controlled. Like if I tell my spouse about this, they're going to make me stop. And then we're going to get into a parent. I see couples coming out of secrecy detection into parent-child sometimes. Yeah. It's sort for of the sure. next. Yeah, it's like one closely trade related. one pattern for another. Yeah, go mm-hmm. ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I just can see how closely related they are, and that there's a kind of just a power differential that is tempting to fall into. Yeah, and it shouldn't be surprising. But even just as you've have you as you've list, listed the the previous patterns, and we're starting into the the new set, it seems like at the core of many of these dysfunctional kinds of patterns that we fall into is. A balance of power. Yes. Like each person wants to feel like the way they show up in the world and their needs and their preferences and all the things about them are valid and matter. And <laughs> that's tricky when, you ha- when you're, you know, co-leading, <laughs> when you're yeah. dealing with two people yeah. at the top. <laughs> totally. And I think power, I think power kind of gets a bad rap because a lot of the times we associate it with control abuse and it certainly is a, an extreme yes. form of that. But I think every day we need to be able to self-direct our lives and have autonomy and have a sense of self. And that's a sense of personal power, a voice. And you're right. There's all these ways that we get creative in trying to get that. 
-hmm. indirectly, directly, sometimes abusively, secrecy. There's all kinds of ways that we're doing it, but I almost want to take some of the stigma away from seeking power. Yeah. Because I think it's there is a need for that as humans. What are your thoughts on that, Adam? Yeah, completely. And when you have a couple, there's going to be power in the system in some way. And so if you if you decided you want an egalitarian relationship, you got to figure out how to balance that. Mm-hmm. And it's not like one person is bad for wanting some power. It's like you really need a balance together. How do we both have influence in this mm-hmm. in this relationship? Yeah, it feels yeah. like a like a bad word, but right. Maybe in terms of agency, we love agency. We can there get behind go. that. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. approved, and, and we all. Loved it enough that yeah. here we are. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's so true. What I like, I like you use the word influence too. The ability yes. to influence your partner. Gottman talks a lot about that. You know, accepting influence and then you know approaching your partner in a way that you're more likely to influence them. And they're all ways that work together. So I think, yeah, the ability to to have what you feel and think touch your partner and move things along. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one thing that can happen here, and this can tie into. Uh, like sometimes a pursue withdraw or some attachment issues too, but the secret keeper sort of, you know, as I was saying, like they might fear being controlled or, or they don't want to hurt the, the partner. And so they don't say anything, but usually the detective or the detection person has known something was going on or maybe they feel it or they feel anxious. Like, or maybe, maybe it's just, it could be just their own attachment stuff. that's it's causing some anxiety either way. Some, something comes out. It feels like a violation. Or it is a violation of the agreements that they made. Mm-hmm. Or simply, e- even if they didn't make agreements, because some couples never make explicit agreements about things, which I think it doesn't need to be in writing, but it's helpful for couples to talk about this. Like, what, what are we agreeing to? As long as one person isn't submitting and then retaliating with an agreement. Right. But sometimes, if, even if there's not an explicit agreement about, about something, the detective detection kind of partner uh, feels violated in terms of what they understood about the marriage. Like there was no agreement explicitly, but they sort of understood that this is how marriage is supposed to go. And now it's not going that way. So there's got to be some kind of shared understanding with the couple between them. Like, how open are we going to be with each other about what topics? Mm. And if, if you break it down, like there's a variety of ways to be honest. And for some people, you know, it can border on, I want to know everything you're thinking about whenever I ask. And that can be kind of disruptive to a relationship. Versus like, you never get to know what I'm thinking on the other extreme. Mm-hmm. You know, so figuring out that balance and kind of how to have this like healthy boundary with like, you know, the detective not snooping and feeling justified for it and the secret keeper becoming more and more secretive. Oh, and yeah. The, the more the one person snoops, the, other, the more the other person gets secretive and it just kind of spins out. Yeah. Yeah. And don't, don't you find that a lot of the time that these are conversations that the couple ideally would have before they're married as they're trying to figure out what they're signing up for. But I, in my experience and in our own marriage, like a lot of these are done after the fact and you're like, oh, I probably should clarify something when here. When they flare up. Yeah. That's you, when you discover, oh, we got a problem. Family patterns, <laughs> expectations, norms, mm-hmm. all these things start to come out after the fact. And you kind of really got to buckle up and hang on for that ride because a lot of times there's surprises around what you think is normal. Totally with the surprises. And I almost wonder if couples sort of need to just go into marriage, wonder, like talking together, like, hey, so that's going to come up that we're going to be surprised. We're both going to be surprised by. And we're going to have to figure out how to talk about that doesn't mean something's wrong or like we shouldn't have been married. Because you can't, I I love premarital work. And also you can't 
teach everything and prevent everything because stuff comes up after you're married no matter what. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The stuff's still coming up after 26 years. <laughs> it keeps coming up. All kinds of surprises. You can't anticipate. Because people stuff. change too. Yeah. You know, yeah. bodies change, emotions change, life experiences yeah. change us. These are our ongoing conversations. But I love I love this emphasis to destigmatize. I mean, there's obviously some cases where there is very overt secret keeping and manipulation and and stuff like that. And there that needs to be accounted for. I also want to make room for the fact that some people <clears throat> just don't even think to share certain things. And that's not a betrayal. Like there, you know, if you're in yeah. the honesty of your heart, the integrity, it's just kind of like, oh, that never occurred to me. And I didn't grow up seeing my parents do that, or that wasn't normal in my cult family culture or my community. And so there has to be a lot of sorting through that stuff. And of course, people hear me say stuff like this, and they may think, oh my gosh, you're giving people free passes just to <sighs> deceive and be dishonest. And it's right. like, well, they're going to take passes no matter what I say. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. If so, but it does open up a way to normalize and validate the fact that not everybody is an evil genius behind the scenes trying to control the world. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's. I think it's their sinister. best. Yeah, I think, I, I think it's usually their best attempt at managing all of these different things and keeping what the things that they want that they're keeping secret and keeping their relationship and not hurting them. Although it's going to hurt them eventually, or maybe it already yeah. is, but. It's going to come out eventually. How, you know, the, the best question I heard recently was like, how do you want to be found out? <laughs> you know, like, how would you like this to put it? happen? Because it's going to happen. How would you like it to go? And it's sort of do the you want to tell? make a choice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's really good. Even that comes out, that, that can lead into one of their patterns, right? And then you have even stronger secrecy kind of detection pattern or you, or, or if the person is totally open, they say, you know what, no more lies, no more secrets. And then the other person becomes their parent or their therapist, which again is, is totally understandable, especially as a temporary stage, but for the couple to work through that, I mean, they've got, they've got to get past that eventually. Yeah. I tried to take on the therapist role with you once. 23 years ago, Adam, <laughs> when I was in graduate school. One time. One time. <laughs> yeah. And I remember Jody looked at me and said, you are not my therapist. I must have changed my tone or something. <laughs> I was like, we're not going down that road. Never have. And nope, we road never Road closed have. immediately. <laughs> so you learned, you learned right away. That's really impressive. Yeah. Thank <laughs> you. That's one thing, Adam. That's one. <laughs> I have revisited several other roads that should have been closed. But I mean- when your work is to know so many of yeah. the best practices, that's <laughs> it's be hard to step out of that and just roll around in the mud with your own stuff. Yeah, that was the 25-year-old version of me. So yeah, we've grown a, a lot time since time then. Ago. Well, that's the thing with therapists, and I include myself in this 100%, is sometimes we can be really good at other people's stuff or our own feelings. But we have a harder time seeing our impact on people close to us. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes true. we need them to sort of call us out a little bit, like, "Hey, you're talking like a therapist here. Mm. Like, stop. Yeah, <laughs> tune in, come back That's down right. to earth." But honey, it's free. Yeah, you don't have to pay anything. I should feel lucky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I learned that lesson a long time ago. But no, I love this for the secrecy, a detective thing. That is mm-hmm. that is a really important thing. And and I guess I don't know how much more time I want to spend on this one. But the one last thought I'm having, at least on it, is that. A lot of the times there is this, I think it's a, a form of self-deception that I really am trying to protect this other person, but I really believe it's it's generally protecting ourselves whenever we're usually. in a secrecy. Yeah, usually. Yeah. I mean, there might be some cases where that's not the situation. You always have to make room for that. But 
I think it's important to look honestly at your own discomfort around your own truth and whether you don't have never felt permission to ask for what you need or yeah. you have something that you're, you know, you don't want to stop, like you said, or something that would be really embarrassing to have known. It's often we're managing our own discomfort through secrecy versus trying to actually protect people. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. And I like the self-deception framework on that. And I would agree, like in 95% of the cases I've ever, or people mm-hmm. that I've worked with. And in my own life, thinking about self-deception and like, why, what's my motivation for doing this or not doing that? And yeah, I think that's almost always the case. People almost need like a few months of group therapy to work through this before they even tell their spouse, because I think then they would realize in a lot of cases, no, this is really about me and my discomfort. And it's not really about totally true. A spouse. Yeah. And there's no shame in that. I just feel like, yeah, like we, we oftentimes are sitting with stuff and are just terrified of the worst thing of being, you know, abandoned or being rejected or judged or criticized. And I just find that when the truth comes out, there may be a little bit of that, but there's oftentimes more relief on both sides that we're finally getting real about things. So. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, Anything else on that one, Jode? No. Should we move on? Yeah, let's move on to the next one. This next one is a fun one. We could call this one like a sibling competition. Uh, This is the couple who fights like brother and sister or like siblings. So in a marriage, right, you have have a lot of aspects to the relationship. You know, you might be co-parents. Maybe you're even running a business together or a podcast. (laughs) You have a friendship, lovers. There's all these different things where you're trying to sort of work together on something. One of these is sort of, or can be kind of a competition over resources. The one that I've heard like Bill Doherty say, the marital therapist is like, you know, you're sharing a bed and you have a blanket. There's one blanket and one person wants it hot or or the other person wants it cold, like in the air conditioning. So you have a limited resource like a blanket and who's fighting, you know, who has enough of that or where to set the thermostat. These are like simple examples, bigger ones that might even cause more conflict. Like what do we do around holiday traditions? Mm-hmm. Who has the correct traditions? You know, I've heard a lot of newlywed couples, especially, get invites about, like, let's say they're like a, a Christian couple or they're celebrating Christmas. And well, in my family, we did it this way. And well, in my family, we didn't really do that much. And then for some couples, that's fine, and they work it out. But others, this could be kind of tension-filled in terms of mm-hmm. disagreement. Who has the right way? Mm-hmm. Right? And if you're caught up in who's doing it right, obviously, you're going to miss a lot of each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had some friends years ago that they were both youngest children. Mm. I won't say their name. Yeah, I know. You remember a couple I'm talking about? And they they joked about it, but it was, they had a dynamic where they were almost like the two youngest seeking attention all the time, wanting to be the center, wanting to be, you know, privileged. Like there was just a lot of like youngest child dynamics coming out in their marriage. It was really, we laughed about it, but it was a thing. And they were open about it. And yeah, they have a great marriage and they're working through stuff, but like they just laughed about how, how surprised they were that these as the two youngest, that's that's the only way they knew how to show up in a group. And they, one of them needed to be the youngest, but they were both the youngest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The competition for yeah. the attention, getting needs met. Right. For the limited resource of yeah. attention. Yeah. Or, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So somehow they're avoiding the parent-child thing. They're just doing yeah. the child-child. Right. Child-child. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so one goal here is like, how can we manage this sort of competitive side that we have with each other mm-hmm. in a way that's constructive, maybe pickleball. I don't know. Right. How, how can they negotiate and not assume there's something wrong because they're competing? So like, just because they have a big disagreement on how to celebrate a holiday, 
doesn't mean there's something wrong, but they do have to figure out how to work this out in a sort of a more equal, you know, negotiative kind of way. Yeah. Is that a word? I don't know if negotiative is a word, but I just... Oh, I don't know. I'm from Oklahoma. (laughs) I'm super creative with my vocabulary. (laughs) So, you know, one of my favorite phrases that comes up in this kind of pattern, right, is you're not the boss of me. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's that's the sibling phrase. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's sort of the game. You're not the boss of me. Well, you're not the boss of me. (laughs) I mean, a lot of us have this inside. And it can be difficult with that kind of control struggle. Yeah. Looks like you're going to say something. No, I mean, not much. I just was thinking about our ongoing level of volume of music battle. Oh, yes. We have that <laughs> going on. Yeah. Jeff turns the music on. Within a few minutes, I'm like, man, that's loud. And I'm turning it down. And within a few minutes, he's like, man, where'd the music go? And he's turning it up. And we're both <laughs> yeah. just like, you're invading my space with your needs. Right. Stop trying to boss my, my music volume preferences. <laughs> Growing up. We had in our kitchen cupboard, we had a bunch of mugs and one of them had Garfields and Odie on it. And they were each yeah. in a canoe. They were in the same canoe paddling different directions. And the, the caption says, I'm easy to get along with when things go my way. Right. I remember seeing that when I was a kid and going, what is that? Really? Now I get it. You know? Oh, <laughs> yeah. <big> time. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. 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 And I think that this one especially probably has more of a potential for some humor in it. Mm-hmm. If couples can get sure. there. Because it. Sometimes it just, it is ridiculous. The music battle, right? Like it's just, it's just dumb. And we actually solved it. We bought a new set of speakers for Jody that work better for her ears. And then we, she can control those on her phone. I can handle it louder. Uh So Jeff enjoys it. And so so do I at the same time. And then when Jody leaves, I turn it up. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And a a lot of couples, you know, I guess for anyone who finds themselves doing this, I'll spit in their soup right now. A lot of couples, when they're fighting, and you can sort of say, hey, you two kind of fight like siblings. People don't like to hear that. No. <laughs> yeah, that no, feels you don't want to have a, a, like a sibling dynamic my with your brother, spouse. My brother, my sister. Right. And yeah. so it feels, I'll just say it, it, feel, it, feel, it can feel incestuous to them at that point. And then they go, oh, we don't want to do that. And so it can be motivating to get out of it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that'll interrupt the cycle. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm feeling it about yeah. you just about the music. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Adam. So, thanks for. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> Hopefully, you still have some music playing at some point. But yeah, both people need to be right. So it's kind of about being right or having that your view of reality that be right. Like right. that's the concern. And right. it's I don't want to throw that comp- entirely under the bus. Like we all have, a, I think, a need to feel sane and coherent and like. Like our views make sense and our feelings make sense. And so people, some therapists will say, well, like, well, you can be right or you can be connected. And I'm like, I, part of me agrees with that, but also like there is a thing to feeling right enough. I need to feel like I'm not crazy. Sure. So, yeah. That your experience and perspective are valid mm-hmm. Yeah. and how you showed up, how, you know, right. whatever happened that like it makes sense. And, but maybe there's a, a different way to hopefully solve problems. Hopefully people find that from within mm-hmm. more or maybe from like spiritual sources or, or wherever. The, the challenging thing is they expect or they demand their partner to validate their rightness. But mm-hmm. the other one has a different take on what's right and they're not going to validate you. And so they'll go to a, a sibling or a friend or in the worst case, like an affair to get that validation. That's even worse. So mm-hmm. all of us, I think, are challenged in a marriage to kind of develop our own sense of flexible kind of self-validation and like 
my spouse feels differently on this. That's fine. This is the way I feel. Like that's not necessarily a problem. Sort of stand our ground, but still be sort of open to influence. Yeah, that's definitely a developmental process. Mm-hmm. I know it has been for me of just, there's some things I have strong opinions about and I just sort of hold to and it's like, I have no problem. But there's other areas that I feel maybe a little more ashamed or like I, I shouldn't want that or it's not okay because it impacts her or my kids a certain way. And so I think that, yeah, there's, there is a process of becoming at peace with that, you know, and then some people are just oblivious to it and they just want what they want and they don't care what anybody thinks. And some people are always reading the room and, and have no sense of self. So I, mm-hmm. I agree that that's definitely a developmental process yeah, to get to that. For sure. And everyone's at some level that I mm-hmm. think we're all kind of working on it. So one last thing I thought of with the sibling thing, we're still on that one, right? Yeah. 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 Is I was thinking about that book that we used it with our kids, Siblings Without Rivalry. Oh yeah. 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 My wife loves that book. Yeah. And obviously it's written for children, not for marriages. But I remember the phrase that keeps coming to my mind as I'm sitting here is, they say something like, like the parent would say to the two children, to two siblings, oh, there's one toy and two boys. What do we do? <laughs> and I'm thinking about as a couple sitting there going like, wow, there's one, there's one speaker and two people. <laughs> what do we do? What do we- but it really just acknowledges there's two of you. There's not one of you. And there is one thing. So what do we do? And it really opens up a chance for some creativity, some curiosity, some respect which is obviously what this book is trying to help children learn. But a lot of us act like children when there's one resource mm-hmm. yeah. and we feel oh. entitled to it or we get demanding. Totally. And I really, I just think of that phrase and I'm like, huh, that might be a nice way to frame that as a couple. Just say like, oh, there's two of us and one thing here. But I love the idea of framing it as fighting over a resource. Yeah. Because I think that's a really great way to look at it. And there's so many, mm-hmm. like whether it's a blanket or music or fries. Mm-hmm. And there are, I mean, when, when you can see it that way, you can be a lot more creative in the problem solving. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, this comes up more often than I'd like to admit. It's the remote. And like <laughs> my wife's fine. Yes. She doesn't mind me like using the remote, but it's always like, okay, we watched one episode of The Office. Can we go to bed now? And I'm like, one more. <laughs> like, I got to get up early. And, I'm, and I'll, I think lately I'll have to ask her, but I think lately I'll, I'll say, yeah, it's fine. Let's go to bed. But I'm doing it kind of like in my mind, I'm going, Ugh. Doing it like a minor, like a little fit in my head. Like, Adam, what are you doing? Seriously. Like, go to bed. <laughs> You're an adult. <laughs> uh, so many of these. Yeah. Yep. For sure. In big and small ways. And I, and, yeah. and I don't even want to like demonize conflict itself. Like some of this is just being a human. Yeah. Trying to relate to another human and have this bond and connection and, and stuff's going to happen. But yeah, it can be helpful to sort of see and step back, especially if things get a little more heated, like, hey, this is what we're actually doing. And there's there's a limited resource here. How can we share it? How can we use our words and share? Our- <laughs> I love it. <laughs> use our- I'm waiting for you to say, use your words, you- Jeff. <laughs> I'm just waiting for it. Well, then you get into a parent thing, you know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, the next, you know, the last few uh, patterns here are kind of more about vulnerability. I mean, like deeper sharing and emotional intimacy and this kind of thing. One that I sometimes see, not as much, but I I do sometimes see is is there's one spouse who shares a lot of like very deep feelings, like very deep fears, you know, their whole psychological history, kind of everything that's happened to them. This can feel up front kind of like a good thing. Okay, somebody's sharing a lot. This is really good. The issue is if it's only one person. Oh, Uh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. The other person can get overwhelmed or maybe they feel like a demand, like they're supposed to go that deep as well. 
like that's how you do marriages, kind of like one of the previous patterns. Maybe the other partner is not ready. Maybe I don't know if I want to share all this right now. And it's sort of, you sort of have an imbalance with one person sharing a ton and the other one sharing very little. The goal here, I think, is not to say like, you shouldn't share so much or you need to share more on the other side, but more, these are two different ways of being. Not every marriage, honestly, I think most marriages aren't full of these like super vulnerable, deep sharing moments all the time. Some couples have those once in a while. Some couples have them once or never, or maybe more often, but there are differences in how couples relate to each other. And there isn't one, I think, that's more evolved or like the better way to be. They're just different ways of being. And so if one partner is a, is a big sharer of feelings, the other person doesn't need to feel like they're wrong. They're just, they have a different way of approaching emotion and history and psychological distress. Yeah, so true. I think of, I mean, there's, there's some couples I've worked with where one person is so full of words, but they're terrible on follow through and commitment and loyalty and fidelity, where somebody else might be a person of very few words, but is like rock solid loyal and is a very good marriage partner in that way. Yeah. And so, you know, you really have to look at what you're measuring here. And Mm -hmm. a lot of the times we do, especially in 2022, we equate emotional vulnerability and opening up and sharing as sort of this premium virtue. And, and where we look back on maybe some old rancher who never said much, but was super hardworking, loyal, faithful, good to his family. And in some ways, maybe a way healthier person than somebody who talks all the time. (laughs) Yeah. So you're saying that like marriages, can do just fine if there's not a reciprocity in vulnerability. Yeah, I don't think there has to be. Like, not a, I'm not saying like no vulnerability or no sharing. It's going to be challenging to do that. But I don't think there needs to be like, you know, both people do a lot of deep sharing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've known a lot of couples that neither couple did a lot of this kind of deep sharing. Neither one held each other and, cried and shared some deep feelings and their marriage was fine. And it, sometimes they can feel bad. Like, are we doing it right? We're not holding each other and sharing. I'm not mocking that either because some couples have that. It's awesome. It's just, there's more than one way to be married in a healthy way. I think. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like all the conflict stuff looks kind of the same, but the, the way of, you know, it's more expansive and more, more varied. I think when you talk about good marriages, Yeah. Mm-hmm. but like, you know, Gottman and others have like identified these things pretty much predict divorce every time. That's pretty much the same. We all end up in the same bottom of the barrel mm-hmm. when we're in conflict. But but yeah, I agree, Adam. And I, I appreciate that reframe because I think that a lot of couples who maybe don't do that as naturally or whatever feel like they're somehow, they have terrible marriages. And I would never want anybody to think that if it's really working yeah. for them. No, and sometimes, and I, I've been there as a therapist where I'm trying to help a couple become kind of more vulnerable and do some of this deeper kind of work. And, and the, the, in the session, it's amazing. And they're reaching nude levels and whatever. And then they go home and it's just like their day-to-day issues are just so big and in a way that like, okay, that was a nice moment we had with you, Adam, but we go home and we got this other issue. Or how do we manage our day-to-day connection, not just this deep stuff? I'm an intimacy junkie. Like I love the deep stuff with couples. I love going there. I don't think it, you know, maybe this makes me sort of, I don't know, out there in the field. I, I don't like to position myself that way, but I don't think that solves everything. I don't think deep vulnerable sharing is the panacea for all of our problems, if that makes sense. That's almost mm-hmm. heresy in 2022, especially, mm. right? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it kind of, I mean, I think culturally, I mean, Brene and others like, you know, have yeah. just really like, open up, be vulnerable, be real, be authentic, like share, share, share. 
And there's so much sharing that I think sometimes it's okay to be able to say, and there's other ways to feel close as well. Yeah. 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 And yeah. And again, I would just reaffirm, like, I love that stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Live for it. And it doesn't, sometimes there are other things that need to be worked on as well. Or sometimes nothing's wrong, which can lead to this next pattern here, where it's just you have one person pushing the other one to open up because, you know, they're not doing it right. Right. So like one spouse feels like I've read all the Brene Brown books. I've gone to my own therapist. I have the EQ, the emotional intelligence, the EQ. My spouse should reciprocate. They should be equally as vulnerable. And if they don't get it, if they don't open up to me, I'm going to feel lonely and feel pushed away, but also entitled. If I'm married, I deserve to have a partner who's open to me and not just open, but, you know, deeply so, right? I'm, I'm, I'm talking, this isn't about honesty. This is about like, you know, deep, vulnerable sharing. And so they might become more demanding. And no one ever likes to open up, whether it's, you know, sexually or emotionally or any kind of intimate way to a demand. Intimacy has to be really safe, right? If there's a control struggle, how do you become vulnerable to somebody who is, you're locked in a control struggle with them. They're demanding you open up. Like it's like, it's almost a command to close up and and wall off while also being told to open up at the same time. Mm -hmm. It's just, it freezes the other person. So you have a control struggle happening. Kind of like a vending machine. I mean, I want you to tell me whatever you're feeling at any moment, at any level I want in the moment that I want to hear it. Okay. I put in the dollar A3, give me the, give me the vulnerability. That's never going to work. Or it'll be, if the other person does respond, it won't be satisfactory anyway. Right. Yeah. I'm thinking through that one. And I mean, it really does tie into the previous pattern, which is based on a belief that if the other person doesn't share that in, and in this pattern, this case, it's on demand, but that like, if that doesn't come out, then something's wrong. And yeah. so, you know, in terms of an antidote to that, I mean, really just learning your partner's style, learning, you know, just really understanding from them, like what really works for them and not having the, I'll just call it arrogance perhaps, or the, the narrow-mindedness, narrow-sidedness of, of believing that your way of feeling secure and safe is the only way. I do think that in a lot of betrayed relationships that I've worked with, where there's been some kind of major breach or major betrayal, there can be this urgency, this, and it can become very demanding, like, yeah, I need to know this right now because I can't feel safe otherwise. And so that, I have a lot of compassion for that piece of it because it's- it's especially if there's been a lot of withholding or manipulation or lying, even around, I mean, I see this a lot with people that have unwanted pornography use, and then they like achieve a level of mastery or sobriety with it as, as we might describe it. But then like the next level of secrets is really around how they feel about things up and to including how they feel about their yeah. own partner. And then that can become the new betrayal, the new secrecy. And that can be, there can be a demand there about you know, if you're really in recovery or if you're really healthy, you'll share all this with me. And I think we have to slow that down mm-hmm. and recognize that one, somebody who's been keeping secrets probably isn't very emotionally sophisticated enough to even know what they feel half the time. But also there's probably not a lot of reflexes in the relationship to even do that kind of stuff. And to, to do it under duress or under that kind of pressure is asking a lot. So I think it's, we have to really be so careful much. with that. Yeah. And both people kind of get locked in again. Yeah. I love emphasizing self-responsibility and both people get locked into this pattern together and they don't know how yet to do something different. They've never been given the chance. So I get the demand on one side coming out of that. And then like, they're like, oh, like I used to hold this secret and I don't hold that secret anymore, but I need to hold some kind of secret if I'm going to survive here. So I'm not going to tell you how I feel. And they might not even think that consciously. It's just 
they're just so used to like, I've got to have some power here. And I just lost everything in terms of power, right? I'm not saying this person over here who feels betrayed or was betrayed, you know, didn't, they lost a lot. They lost the image of what they thought their relationship was and who their partner was. But yeah, just a, a lot to work through there. And if couples are stuck in one of these patterns in the meantime, that's not saying like, oh no, this is doomed. We all do these. This is the, you know, it's a stage like we can, we can work through this. This is what we're doing right now. I exploited you with my secrets. Now you're exploiting me with this power. Long term, we need to not exploit each other. But mm-hmm. it makes sense to kind of go through that. Yeah, you can't start there. I think that's the, that's a great endpoint. But I I agree that you want to frame it that way eventually. You know, almost like an right. agreement. Yeah. So that's a really good one. Last two, the second to last one here. I think I'll just go through this one quickly. Is kind of where each partner sort of plays the other one's therapist. There's like no boundaries around that. Maybe both partners have had a lot of therapy. I, I love therapy. It's my job. I like getting my own. I'd get more if I could. Like all that. I, I love it. Maybe these are therapists themselves in this conflict, or maybe they've done a lot of self-help books. You know, reading really psychologically minded. They're watching psychological TikToks all day about whatever. But yeah, they mind read each other. They they talk about you know my spouse has a trauma history. Maybe it's both people. They both have really good insights into their own you know, and the other's histories and they use psychological terms to define each other. But you need to be careful, couples need to be careful, like, you know, also acknowledge your own stuff and not just become sort of like each other's diagnostician or, or therapist mm-hmm. or whatnot. This can become kind of weaponized or even you can turn it on yourself. Like I see sometimes couples come in and they both agree that this person has the issue and maybe even the person who has that issue feels that, yeah, I'm the problem in this relationship. Because I have my trauma history. Then you have the sort of imbalance and whatever. Even if it's said without a lot of anger or any contempt, it's still kind of a, a boundary issue by talking about your partner as if they're this like pre-verbal child sitting in the room. You know, couples come in and one person speaks for the other one. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm thinking, these people are both in their, say, I don't know, mid-50s. And one person's talking about the other one in the room like they're two. So mm-hmm. how can we you know, both like speak for ourselves? not diagnose each other, this kind of thing. Yeah. And it's way easier in 20, in these days to diagnose your partner. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many people come into my office and have already determined that their partner is a narcissist or that yeah. they're this or that. I mean, that's, that's probably the most common one I hear the most now. Yeah. And it's probably like how, you know, physicians, medical doctors are getting tired of people coming in after reading WebMD, you know? Yeah. I just need you yeah. to corroborate what I have already researched. <laughs> yeah. And, and as a therapist, it's a little bit tricky sometimes, right? Because if you'd be like, you can't be like, nah, you're wrong. Then they'll just go find another therapist who will say, yeah, good point. <laughs> right. So I'm always asking clients if they have that sort of stance, like, tell me what you mean by narcissist. Like, what do you want me to understand when you use that word about your spouse? What are you trying to hope? What are you hoping that I'll get about you? Uh, something like that. Just yeah, that's a great question. Break that down a little. Um, yeah, and I and I think I think that pattern, you know, if they're doing it to each other, I, I agree in terms of boundaries. It, it really gets messy because you're obviously giving probably a lot of unsolicited advice, but even just seeing your partner, like you lose kind of that. I think in a way, almost like the admiration and the. I think it really can mess with the connection quite a bit because now it's just like I don't know if it's objectification is too strong of a term, but it's almost like you're seeing them as like a project or something that's damaged or broken or defective. And and I think it really does mess with that culture of, you know, just appreciation, normalizing, validating. We're both two humans on a journey. 
we're trying to, you know, there might be things we need to clean up or own and, you know, account for, but I'm not sitting here like in this kind of one-up position as, and they might take turns with it, but there's this, I don't know, just to me, it seems like a huge, like intimacy relationship buzzkill. Yeah, totally. totally. So the last thing here, the last few minutes. Before we move on, I just want to make a comment about, about that. Just that like it requires so much self-discipline to just make yourself the project. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's really what it's about. And I have been there. I've had to like see in myself, oh, I'm spending all this energy or even, you know, I'm sitting in church and I'm hearing like some beautiful doctrine thought and where do I go with it? Oh, my sibling <laughs> really needs that thing. <laughs> when, I mean, it's just meant for me to like be open to see how I can change me. How does that saying really... go? As soon as someone gets a little bit of an insight, they immediately start judging everyone else. <laughs> That's yeah. kind of the, the feeling. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. As soon as we know a little bit about something, we're, we're going to use it as a lens to sort of mm-hmm. attack everyone. Mm-hmm. And sometimes yeah. just that the act of doing that can be a signal to like reel it in. Yeah. But it does take a, a tremendous amount of, oh. of effort just to keep it here. And do your own stuff. Totally. <laughs> There's so many spin outs on that. And, and, and mm-hmm. one is like somebody who says what you said, but then they add, I'm going to make sure that I don't judge anyone. And then they go to their spouse and they say, I never judge you. <laughs> right? It's like, hello. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it can be deceptive. Yeah, for sure. That self deception piece is so like layered. Mm hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah, just wrapping it up. Actually, I wanted the last one to be positive and talk about some positive kinds of cycles. I think one is, and I think this is the most important one to me personally, uh, it's just nurturing. You know, we take care of each other at times, offer support. We try. You can't, you can't meet all of each other's needs. It's impossible. But you try to meet some of each other's needs for closeness or for security or for autonomy, you know, these kinds of things. Being responsive to attachment kinds of concerns. And feeling cared for, being caring. Like it's sort of a nurturing cycle that can play off of itself in a, in a positive way if there's a balance. And then the other thing is, is validation. And there's a lot of debate in the field on one side, like you should validate yourself. And the other side is like, self-validation doesn't work. You need to get validation from your partner. That's what works. And they're both important, I think. But as far as like validating your partner, you know, seeing each other, understanding each other, Treat the other person's needs as important. Treat their wants as important if you can work with them. Sometimes you can't. You know, valuing and respecting each other. Being sensitive to preferences. Even if you don't get them, you're not going to always get them. You know, people can feel nurtured, but they might not feel validated. Or they can feel validated as a good person, but not nurtured. And I think both of those, the nurturing and the validation piece, can be really important in terms of just trying to throw some positive cycles in there. Mm-hmm. I think that can be a self-reinforcing pattern too. Once it, you know, if both people really take the risk yeah. to, to do that. And I love your emphasis on most of us are going to make sure our spouse has food, shelter, and clothing. Like we're, we're good on the needs part, but that wants part can really be hard because it may interfere with us getting what we want or feeling like, I mean, again, sharing resources and stuff like that. But I love that, that idea of just nurturing your partner and really tuning in to ways that they feel loved. Yeah. I think the, one challenge that I give myself a lot and, but especially with couples is, you know, if 
this person doesn't, if the situation or this person doesn't change, what kind of partner do I want to be? Because sometimes you can think, okay, I want to start a positive cycle. So I'm going to be really nurturingly validating. And in the back of your mind, you're going, and then my spouse will to reciprocate. And then they don't. And then you get resentful. I just want to hit that up front, like do the nurturing and validation because if you believe in it, because this is what you think is right. And you're going to do it regardless of whether or not they reciprocate immediately. But if you do it enough, and a lot of times they will, but you can't do it with this sense of like, I'm going to make this person dinner and then they're going to really thank me and fall over about it. Right. It can't be transactional. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great point, Adam. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. The idea, of course, the dream would be that, you know, both people engage at the same level and yeah. you might have moments like that, but I agree that it yeah. often is more important to one than the other at different times. But making a practice of the nurturing, you know, like Gottman's five to one ratio, just mm-hmm. giving yourself to those those positive efforts really mm-hmm. do contribute to making the conflict more manageable. Mm-hmm. Then it doesn't have to be so big. It doesn't have to consume so much space in the relationship. Yeah, for sure. Oh, that's excellent. These are great, Adam. Mm-hmm. Thanks for having me on. This is really yeah. Cool. Oh my gosh. Really great stuff. So. Yeah. Really great stuff. Fantastic. So I always want to know like where people can find you. Where are you hanging out? What are you doing? I know you're on social media. Yeah, Instagram. I have a website in terms of like people contact me for therapy. My group for out of control sexual behavior is we have people joining like throughout at any given time. It's just a matter of there being room right now. I think we have a little bit of a wait list, but there are openings there now and then. Um, It's all on Zoom. So we have folks around the country joining that one. Yeah, then I see couples, individual clients too. So Yeah, we'll make sure to put all that in the show notes. Mm-hmm. What's your website? AdamFisherPhD.com. Awesome. AdamFisherPhD.com. We'll neither confirm nor deny that I bought that domain when I didn't have a PhD. <laughs> well, good job. There's some foresight. Way to think ahead. I know. <laughs> that's a good story. I yeah, like that. that's awesome. <laughs> Just in case. You have a very common first and last name. So, you know, you I definitely... do. Like I couldn't... Adam Fisher was taken by like 30 people, so... Yeah, you mm-hmm. got to make sure. And maybe that drove you to get the PhD, you know, whatever it takes. <laughs> I need to like separate myself a little. Right. Yeah. Oh, well, you're, you're amazing. I, we'd love talking to you. Thank oh you so gosh. much. You're just so thoughtful. Way. and I feel the same way. Yeah. So fun. So fun to talk about this stuff. So thanks for coming on. Yeah, and thank you. Maybe yeah. we'll do it again sometime. Thank yeah. you. I'd love to. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Excellent. Excellent.